Does anyone know what chapter are we doing today? Acts 15. And Acts 15 is not only really the central chapter, uh, almost logistically, in the book, but really it stands at the center or a major turning point in the story, in the narrative of the early church. And as we go today to the book of Acts, we're only really going to cover 35 verses because that 35 verses contains what's known as the Jerusalem Council. It's the first great council of the Christian church. And really the church comes to a crossroads here and it's here in this council that the decision is made as to the uh, way that the, the gospel is to go forward to the Gentile nations. So before we open the Word of God, before we uh, look into this, let's have a, a short word of prayer and ask God to just focus our minds. Let's bow our heads. Dear Father in heaven, as we open your Word, I pray that you'll speak to us just as if you're standing right here. Father, you love us so much. Let us experience that through your word today. I pray for everyone here. May the name of Jesus Christ be lifted up so high that we are all drawn to you. Lord, restore us. Speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 15. Acts 15 takes us to, as I mentioned, a crossroad in the story in the narrative of the first century church and we're really now about 20 years after the crucifixion of Jesus. It's about 20 years later. Um, it's A lot has happened. The gospel has gone forward not only from Jerusalem, Samaria, but now really reaching the Gentiles in a major way. The previous chapters we saw Paul up now through Antioch, up, up in uh, Lystra and other areas in the north which is now modern-day Turkey and it's in that region that we pick up our context here. And in chapter 15 and verse 1, as Paul has preached the gospel to the people, a certain question is risen up. And let's read this question here in chapter 15 and verse 1. Certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are what? Circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be what? saved. So really the, the, the chapter 15 starts with a question and introduces us, Luke draws us into the context. This question is raised and it's been really on the fringes but now it's brought to the front. What are the conditions for salvation or essentially what does it mean to become a Christian? This is the core question, this is the setting, the context for this chapter as we move into this council of the early church. And what I want you to do for just one minute, turn to the person next to you because this question, as simple as it is, I wonder how often we ask it. And I want you to talk to the person next to you or talk to yourself, whatever, and answer this question. What do you think? What are the conditions of becoming a Christian? Let's say, for example, someone says to you, I want to be a Christian. What's the conditions? So I'll let you answer that and talk to someone next to you. I'm going to give you one minute to answer that.
Okay. You're all talking. I wonder what questions you know. I was going to ask you, but I won't ask the answers, just in case. I'll get some pretty random stuff. But think about it, because as we approach this chapter, this is the question that the apostles, that the Jews, the, the people there are asking this question. Okay, the Gentiles are now coming into the church. What are the conditions for them entering the Christian faith? And this is what we're going to look at. This draws us into the Jerusalem Council. So once this question is raised, as we see here, these Jews come along, they come to Antioch, they come to the Gentiles, and they tell them after the gospel has come to them, after they have accepted Jesus, they come along and say, if you want to enter into this movement, you need to be what again? Circumcised. In other words, you need to keep the ceremonial laws of Moses. In other words, you need to be Jewish. Does that make sense? This is the context. So as we go in, what we're going to look at is there's three main parties presented. The first one is this. In verse 1, we have the circumcision party, or what's known as the Pharisees or the Jews. These are non-believers in Jesus. These are Jews, but they have not accepted Jesus. And as they look at this very Jewish movement that is Christianity, but it has this difference, they come along and to these Gentiles and say, you need to become a proselyte. You need to do the Jewish things if you want to hang around with us, if you want to come to the synagogue, if you want to fellowship with us, you need to do these things. These are, the, these are the Jews. The second is this. There's Pharisees, Jews, who have accepted Jesus. They're Pharisees in the what? In the faith. As the Bible says, they're believers in Jesus Christ. Now, they represent in the council that they are saved by what? Faith. But do they neglect the law of God? No. So they believe that their salvation is not dependent on anything but faith in God, but because they're saved, they keep the law of God. Does that make sense? The third party is this. We have the Gentile converts. The Gentiles themselves um, are pagans. They've been brought up in the Greco-Roman world. For them, all they've known their entire lives is to worship Jupiter or to Juno or to worship the various pantheon of Roman gods or wherever they're from, whether Mithraism or Isis in Egypt, wherever it is, that's all they've known. Their entire lives were the, pa- were the pagan customs and traditions. And all of a sudden, these people come along and say, we're here to tell you about this God who who sent his son, Jesus, etc., etc., and they accept it, but do they know a lot about Judaism? They don't. Now, these Jews who've come along and told the people that they need to keep the law are very well intended, and this is an important point to note. Here it says, concerning the, the, the converted Pharisees, the um, uh, Pharisees who accepted Jesus, with the influx of Gentiles into the church... These often well-meaning advocates of law-keeping were concerned about the influence of pagan practices and morality corrupting the what? The church. So for them, this was a very good concern. This was an okay concern. They were concerned as these Gentiles were coming in, as they were involved in the rituals and the paganistic system, are they going to bring this into the church? Are they going to corrupt the church? And so what do they say? They're thinking the best antidote to paganism was what? Strict Jewish practice. So this is where they're coming from as we approach the council. The Jews, that's what they've known for centuries. 
for hundreds of years through the prophets, through the, through the Torah, through the first five books of Moses, through all of this instruction, they have developed laws and systems in place to keep them from sin, to keep them closer to God. And all this knowledge from a child, they were taught, they were instructed, they, their, their culture saturated in it. And then as they come along, they look at the pagans, these people who don't know any of this, and they're saying, you guys need to keep all these things that we've developed, all these customs, they will keep you in this relationship. Does that make sense? But the pagans, they're coming from a totally different perspective. For example, here in Corinth, how good is my photography? (laughs) So here in Corinth, for example, when you're in Corinth... You have, of course, the pagan worship, but up on the hill there, which is now the remnants of a crusader castle, was once a temple or a place of worship, and there it housed a thousand prostitutes. This was part of temple worship. For the pagan world, prostitution, eating meat offered to idols, all of these things, this was common. This was just part of life. This was the, this was the, this is the place they're coming from. So you can understand for a Jew looking at the pagans coming into the church, they're concerned that these practices, this way of life, they're going to bring with them what? Into the church. So this is the setting. We have two major positions. Position one, the law of Moses should be kept as part of what? Salvation. Now that's the important point. You must keep it to be what? Saved. The second position is this. They believe first in the faith, or they're saved by Jesus Christ, and then they do what? They still keep the law of Moses out of obedience. So is the, this is the key thing. A lot of people will approach the Jerusalem Council, this chapter, and this really divides a lot of Christianity today. People look at the chapter, and they read the conclusion of the Jerusalem Council and say, they've done away with the what? The law. So we're saved by faith, great, but there's no law now. We put the law away. But is that what this is really about? No, nowhere in the chapter are they even disputing doing away with the law. That's not even an issue here. So I've got to make that point. It's very important. The issue here is, what do I need to do to be what? Saved. That's the context. This is the situation. So you can imagine the early church coming together. So basically, as we read, Paul and Barnabas furiously fight against this doctrine from the Jews that they must do this, this, and this in order to be saved. They say, no, salvation is of Jesus Christ. And so they they dispute about it. And the dispute gets so large that a council is called. And this is where we pick up in the council. Two groups, two doctrines, two places. And so here we have the argument picking up in verse 6. Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And when there had been much dispute, in other words, there was a lot of wrestling going on here, theological wrestling, much dispute. Peter rose up and said to them, who, who rose up? Peter. Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago, God chose among us that by the mouth, by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and do what? Believe. So God, who knows their heart, acknowledges them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to who? To us. So Peter stands up essentially and says, look, you guys know 
the experience I had 10 years ago with Cornelius. Many of you remember Acts chapter 10, where the, remember Peter saw the sheet coming down with all the unclean animals? And he saw this situation, and remember that the conclusion of Peter, what he saw was this. As the sheet came down, God told him, do not call anything impure that God has made what? clean and he was trying to show Peter coming from this Jewish perspective not to look at the Gentiles as what impure because God knows their what their hearts he's trying to show Peter he's trying to show the Jews to get them to think outside of all the rituals to see that salvation is not based upon me doing this 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 and then it works out but salvation is of the the heart. So Peter is saying this, he, he recounts the story. I mean, we, if we were there, it would have been something like this. You guys know, I've already shared with you 10 years ago, how I went to Cornelius, a Roman centurion. Now, when I went to his house, he wasn't even a proselyte. He wasn't even part of the Jewish nation. He was a pagan man, a Roman. Yet when I went to his house, what came down upon him? The Holy Spirit. Was Cornelius keeping any ceremonial laws? So the Jews who are saying, you must keep the ceremonial laws to be saved, Peter says, look, from my experience, I went to Cornelius' house, he was a Gentile, a Roman, and when I got there, his heart was right with God. And when he heard the gospel, the simple gospel, the Holy Spirit coming down upon him and his household, and they were what? Saved. So Peter brings this argument to the table. He says, you know that this is what I've seen. God taught me something through this experience. They weren't keeping the the laws. They weren't keeping the ceremonial laws. And then God went, okay, you're just right. Here comes the Holy Spirit. No, he accepted Jesus Christ. So Peter goes on and he makes this statement, verse 9, and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now notice this in verse 10. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a what? What are they putting on them? A yoke. Why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? What is he talking about? Peter says this. As the Jews, as the Jewish nation... All the way back when God first made an agreement with us, when he wanted to enter a relationship with us, he gave us all of these laws, and they're good laws to keep us walking in connection in a relationship, in a loving, harmonious relationship with him. And we have all these laws and stuff, but we couldn't keep them perfectly. Why are you trying to lay this, what's that word? Yoke upon them to keep them perfectly. Because what does he say in verse 11? What is salvation all about? How, do we, how are we saved according to Peter? Verse 11 says, But we believe that through the what? What's that word? What's that word again? Grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Peter is saying, We couldn't keep the law perfectly. The only reason why we are saved, any of us, all through history, has been because of a gracious God who forgives us. That's it. It's not about doing this or doing that and then you're right with God. Peter says, 
We are saved by grace through faith. Don't lay this yoke upon them. Now, I want to make this point. There's nothing wrong with the ceremonial laws back then. They, they served their purpose. All laws in the Bible, including the Ten Commandments, which are separate, all do not save us. What did I say? The law does not what? But the law points us to the fact that we have what? Sin, and then we go to who for Savior? For salvation. We go to Jesus. So the law has always served the purpose of teaching us about our condition so that we can go to Jesus. Does that make sense? So then why are you saying that in order to be saved, you must keep this law and that law, and then you're saved? Who's not doing away with the law? You know, it's interesting. So often I have people ring me up, especially mothers, and they say to me, look, I don't know why they ask me, I don't have kids, but they ask me, my son or my, my daughter is not keeping the Sabbath, what do I do? I'm trying to get them to church. They're not keeping the Sabbath. What do you think? So I say to them, you grab them by the ear, right? And you go, come and keep the Sabbath. And when we're there, you smile and act happy. Some of you parents are like, yeah, that's, yeah, that's right, that's what we do. But this is the thing that, that, that's really interesting. The more I've studied the gospel, the more one thing God's taught me. And when I, when I, when I speak to, them, to the mothers, I say this. And when I speak to anyone, I say this. Would you rather them keep the Sabbath because you want them to or because they want to? That's your focus. And it's very hard to get it the other way around, isn't it? Do you want your kids, do you want your wife, do you want your husband, do you want your friends to come to church, to keep the Sabbath, to eat gluten steaks? Because you want them to, and they're just coming along, or because they want to? The heart of the Bible, the heart of the gospel is this. God loves us and wants to have a relationship with us. And when you're in that relationship, you don't need to ask anybody to do anything. You know, I said to someone the other day, I said, what's the difference between a lady walking up to me in the street and just a random lady, picture this, walking up to me in the street and saying, oh, hi, could you go and um, pick up some groceries for me? And while you're at it, I just need you to pay the bills. I mean, how would I react? I'd say the loony bin's open. No, I mean, <laughs> as opposed to Alicia doing it, What's the difference? I heard some funny comments there. <laughs> I better be real careful or I'll get in trouble. Lo love, right? I mean, for my wife, do you need, it's, no, it's just a response, right? Because when you're in a loving relationship, is it easy to obey, to do stuff for people? So, so God is asking us, God still wants us to keep the Sabbath. He still wants us to do all these things because they're good for us. The ceremonial laws, I mean, Paul, the others, they kept keeping, they went to feasts, they, they still circumcised, but to them, this was keeping them, bringing them closer into a relationship with God. But here's the point. Do not do anything in your Christian experience unless you love God. Because coming to church, keeping the Sabbath, not eating cheese, all these things are good things. Did I just say don't eat cheese? I'm preaching to myself here, okay. They're all good things. Gluten steaks, 
potluck, whatever. But do they save me? Sin, the sinfulness in us, wants to earn it. Did you get that? Wants to earn it. And in the back of your mind, in your Christian experience, you may have been coming to church 10, 20 years, I don't know how long. Why do you come? Why do you keep the Sabbath? Are you here because if I just tick this box off, then God will be happy, right? Is that how it works? Jesus says it simply. If you love me, you will what? Are you sure it's not keep my commandments and then we'll... So many of the youth, and, I, and I'm, I'm going to share this testimony quickly. When I came to the church, I was 16 years old. I grew up, I knew nothing about, I didn't even know who Jesus was. When I came into the church, I was 16 years old and I heard the gospel for the first time. I heard about a God that loved me so much that he died for me. And I got on my knees and I said, you died for me? You died for me? And that struck me so deeply that I said, I'll give my life for you. You didn't have to ask me. You didn't have to force me. You didn't have to twist my ear. I said, I'm yours. Do you think you needed to drag me to church that Saturday? Do you think you needed to drag me to read my Bible? When we fall in love with God, the rest comes. So often in our Christian experience, we're focused on the law and we've forgotten about the relationship. And we're in loveless marriages with God. Does that make sense? And when you're in a loveless marriage, that's hell. And you know what you want to do? You want to get out. And I wonder sometimes why our youth, because when I came into the church, I was 16, I sat in the youth room, right? I sat in the youth room. There were about 30 youth. I'm the only one still in the church. And you know what I noticed? And I'm not, I don't know, I'm not picking on anybody. I'm just making this point. They all kept talking about how their parents dragged them to church, made them do this, made them do that. Whereas, you know what my mom did with me? She just come into church at the same time. We used to go for walks and talk about how much God loved us before we went to church. And then with my little brother, I took him for walks and I told him about nature and this God who loved him so much. And then I turned to him and said, do you want to go to church? He's like, yes. See the difference? We don't invest in the relationship and the love is dissipating. Maybe it was there for some of you. Maybe when you first came in, you had that love, that burning love with God, but now it's just, it's all about laws and regulations and doing stuff and the motivation's not there. We're told, don't forget your first love. It's so important for us not to miss this point that in the Christian experience, everything you do does not save you. But you do it because you are saved. In my relationship with Alicia, there are rules, but those rules are not burdensome. I do them because I'm happy to do them. I love my wife. I don't do certain things because I know that if I do, they will lead me astray, right? Do you know what the biggest problem in any relationship, and this goes especially for God, is this. Are you ready? It's one word. Selfishness. You know what Eve did at the garden? Satan comes along, and this is what he does for all of us. This is, the, this is his main thing for all of us. This is underlying all sin is this. He says, 
you're in a relationship with God, self-seek. Eve, you can do better. Come this way. And the moment we take our eyes off that relationship, because love is other-centered, and the moment love is no longer other-centered, it's now me-centered, what happens to the relationship? How's your relationship with God today? Are you investing all your energies in doing what He wants in that relationship? Because when you connect back to God, it just happens. He says, I am the vine and you're the branch. He that abides in me and I in him, the same will bring forth much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. Every morning you wake up, you know what the number one question should be in your day is not, oh, I need to do this and I need to do that and I've got to make sure I keep things just this right way and if I pray this much and I do... Your number one question is this, am I right with God today? How's my connection with God today? Because God at his very nature is a relational God. We're told in the Bible, God is what? Does anyone want to finish that? God is love, therefore God is other-centered. Does that make sense? He's a trinity. He's other-centered. They love one another. Then when he made us in his image, he made us for what? Guess what? To do what? To love. He made us relational, and we were like that in Genesis 1. But what did sin do? Because what, what separates again? What's that word? So guess what he's trying to get rid of us? Get, get rid of out of us? And make us what? So we can connect with God again. I better get back to the council. Stop taking me off on tangents. Okay. Yeah, David's not here. I'm not in trouble. Okay. Verse 12. Paul and Barnabas stand up. They give testimony as well about all the things. Very similar to Peter. They say, look, we've been amongst the Gentiles. We've seen God work. We've seen the way that God has ministered to them. They didn't keep the ceremony laws, yet God still saved them. He still worked in their life and brought the gospel. But then James stands up. And so we see James stand up in verse 13, and he said in verse 14, Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, and then he goes on to quote Amos here, and he basically shares with them that the context behind all of it, they're starting to see, their eyes are open now, that the very reason the Jewish people existed, and don't get wrong, because I'm going to apply this to the church in just a second, the reason why God set up the Jewish church was for one primary reason. Does anyone know what it was? As he gives them all this knowledge about God, as he gives them all the prophets and all the wisdom about God, are they to do what with it? Is that what they're meant to do? Share it. And here, James stand up and he's looking here and he's looking at all these Gentiles coming into the faith and he realizes, you know what? That's what we were here to do the whole time. That's the whole purpose for the Jewish nation. The reason we existed was to be a light to the Gentiles. But here's the question for us today. I've got to make it applicable. Jesus says, you are the light of the, which means all the wisdom, all the knowledge, all the blessings God has given you, what are you to do with it? Because love is what again? John says this, he summarizes it up, I was talking about this connection right, you know how you connected with God? 1 John chapter 2 verse 3, hereby we do know 
that we know him. We know what? Know him. That word knowing is like Adam knew his wife. They became one flesh. This is how we know that we're in him. If we keep his, what? Commandments. You know how you're in a loving relationship with someone? You do things for them. You love them. Because the commandments are summarized in two key things. Love God and love your who? Your fellow man. And when you're connected to God, when you're in that relationship with God, guess what naturally produces itself? Love. Here do we, how, this is how we know we're right with God, is that we are not self-seeking, we're other-seeking. Does that make sense? How are you today? How's your heart? Do you wake up, is your entire day saturated with what can I get? What, what's going to be best for me? In this relationship, what can, That's what Lucifer had. He had an eye problem, Right? I want to be like the Most High. I want to ascend to the, to, the, to the throne of God, right? But Jesus came. He says, I have not come to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give my life a ransom. Two total opposites. God himself is so other-centered. God so loved the world that he what? What's the next word? How do you know you're right with God? Is that you have the heart of God in you. That you live for others. You live to love. You live to give. But if your heart is full of selfishness, you're not right with God. Full stop. You can't change yourself. The gospel, the power of the gospel, as it says in Romans 1, the power of, the God, of God is this, this gospel which transforms the life. When you connect to God, boom, Jesus transforms your life. If you want your kids to keep the Sabbath, if you want someone near you to worship God and experience God like you do, focus on their relationship with God. Parents, I couldn't emphasize it enough. Don't get caught up in the do's, get caught up in the who. Create a picture in their mind so deep, so powerful, so loving that your children won't need to be forced to do anything. Now, I know it's hard but paint a picture in their minds of a God that loves them so much that they can't help but love back. Because you know what love creates? What does love create? Love. If you want them to love God, let them experience God's love. As Paul says, it is Christ's love to me that compels me. Does that make sense? It's his love for me that compels me. So what happens when I forget that love? Do you you think I'm still compelled? James, in quoting Amos, goes for the center of the passage and draws the conclusion that the Gentiles are indeed welcome as they are on the basis of God's what? And with faith in Jesus as their only badge of membership. Friends, some of you may not have accepted Jesus Christ. Maybe you don't know the full understanding of the gospel. It's this, that when man sinned against God, that selfishness that broke the relationship, ever since that day, God has done everything he can to win our love back. Does that make sense? The whole narrative of the gospel is like a marriage. And right at the end of Revelation, guess who comes down adorned like a bride? It's his church. The unification of his church with God. 
God loves us so much that he's doing everything to get you into heaven. You know why? So you can walk on streets of gold? No, so that you can be with him. That's why in Revelation it says, and God is with us, and we, and we are with him, and he is our God. Just as he prayed in John 17, let us be one as you are one and I are one, and see what he wants. What does God want? He wants this back again. He wants it back again. And you know what gets in the way? What gets in the way? If you want peace in your life, if you want, if you want that peace that only God can give, you need to remove self and let God in. You need to reconnect with God in your life. James concludes as well, lay not a burden upon them. The gospel is the message of a God who does all the work for me and I accept it. It's not dependent on my works. It's not dependent on what I'm doing. It's all about what he does for me. But that love that God has for me brings response. It brings a life of obedience. It brings a life that wants to do what God wants me to do because I know that what he wants is best for me. A life of liberty. The, the council concludes, verse 19, I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted to idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled and from blood. For Moses has throughout many generations those who preach him in every city being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. After they hear the lines of argument, how the Holy Spirit fell, the prophets the word of God, the experiences of the apostles, it's clear to them, the case is closed, that people are saved, not only the Jews, but the Gentiles, which is you and I. We are saved by grace through faith. Plus what? Does anyone want to add anything to that? Full stop. Full stop. And it's interesting how often, in those words of James, let us lay not a what on them? What's that word? It's amazing so often how, oh sorry, it's, it's, it's amazing how often we come along to people and try and lay a burden on their Christian experience. Amen? You're saved by grace through faith. But James does not leave it there. He says there are things that they need to do in their Christian experience to keep them in line with God, to abstain from idols. Sexual pollution, we looked at the Corinthian temple, right? This was part of their life. They said, look, there's some things here you guys need to remove out of your life. Now, here's the thing. What they concluded was this. As Jews, we have had all of our lives, all of this knowledge, centuries of development and understanding and knowledge. And it's bad for us to expect these guys to know all of this straight away. To enter the Christian church is a matter of faith in Jesus Christ. But now that you're in that relationship with God, God is going to continue to educate you and continue to guide you and continue to teach you along the way how you can be closer with Him, deeper with Him, how you can have a relationship stronger with Him. 
So as James says, that in these Gentile nations, the, the law of Moses, the Torah is being read. The Gentiles will go to the synagogues. They'll continue to learn. That's why for us, coming into the seven-day Adventist church doesn't mean you've got to be perfect. doesn't mean you've got to know everything. It means you've got to know Jesus. And you've got to have the Holy Spirit working in your life. And I've got to see the evidences of God working in your life. But once you're in, God then sends the Holy Spirit who will guide you into more truth. Jesus meets you where you are, not where he is. And we are to be the same with people. When I meet someone, wherever they are, whatever sins they're doing in their life, you, I know that them and I are on equal par with God. God is no respecter of persons. I meet them where they are, just as Jesus met you and I where we were. But then he changes us. But then he molds us. But then he moves us deeper and more and more into the image of God. That's the beauty of the Christian experience. Day by day we walk, and as Paul says, it is no longer I who lived, sinful Paul, but it is Christ who lives in me. Did you get that? It's no longer I who live because I've walked that much with Jesus that now he's rubbed off on me, and now I'm living for love. I'm, I'm other-centered, not self-centered. Jesus is calling us to that experience. I want you to take your Connect cards and I want you to give you guys an opportunity on the Connect card to just rethink about your Christian experience. And I put three suggestions on there, just really simple, but these three things to me sort of encapsulate what's happening in the Jerusalem Council. And I think it's so easy for us in our Christian walk to go off topic sometimes, to be doing a whole bunch of stuff, but forgetting about the real emphasis, and that is how is my relationship with God going, right? How much quality time am I spending with God? How much real time am I spending thinking, praying, meditating, talking to Him, letting Him talk to me? How am I, how's my relationship with God because if that's not right, the rest doesn't matter. The first is, Lord, help me not to lay a burden on another Christian's walk. And I put that there because I included, often walk up to people and I set a standard so high when they're only still here. Does that make sense? And I'm, I try to meet people where they are and work with them. Help me not to lay a burden on another person's walk, but to be like Jesus and meet people where they are. Secondly, I accept the free gift of salvation offered by God's grace. It's important for us to understand that you are saved by the grace of Jesus, full stop. I don't care how well you keep the Sabbath, but I keep the Sabbath because it draws me closer to God, because on this day, I have such a beautiful time with God. A whole day set aside to spend time with Jesus. Can't beat it. Thirdly, because I am saved and because of my love for who? Jesus, I want to keep what? God's commandments. You see, the Christian experience is not just a cognitive thing of like, yeah, I accept Jesus. No, but it's a power that works in the life. It's a power that transforms our heart, that gives us, Jesus says, I will write my law on your what? On your hearts, which means 
you will have a new motivation, a new transformation of your life. The, the selfish person that you were, it dies. That's why he says you need to be born. Born what? On the right, if you want to receive Bible studies, you want to learn more about God's love. You want to have a relationship, you want to have connection with God. We offer those freely. If you want to be baptized, if you want to support the Tweed Church campus, which is uh, launching in the beginning of January, you can tick that box as well. And if you want to receive the Kingsliff Church news email, I should tick that because I don't get it. As the musicians come up, this next song, listen to the words, dwell upon the words as we sing this next song and look at the way that God loves us, friends. The gospel at its heart is a God of love that wants to restore a relationship with you and I. That's the heart of the Bible. Are you a friend of God? Amen. That's what the Bible's all about. A relationship broken, but a God who is trying to restore it. Let that be the emphasis of your life. Let that be the focus of your day. Time with God, a God of love. Focus on that relationship. Let's pray together. Dear Father in heaven, as we've done a quick glance over the Jerusalem Council, but the message at the heart of the entire Bible is this. It's the gospel. It's the restoration of a relationship, the restoration of God and man. Father, we are here because we want that peace that only you can offer. And that peace is when we're right with you. Father, many of us have sins in our life. There are things in the way of that relationship. Remove them. Take away self and put in selfishness. Let us have the heart that Jesus says, as he says, love one another as I have loved you. That's what it's about. Father, be with us this day as we fellowship together. As we talk together, may Jesus be on our, on our language. May he be on our minds. May we encourage one another. May we love one another. Give us that heart, Lord. And I pray that you will bless the food as well as we pray for blessing over the food. May you bless the food. And I just want to pray for a blessing on all the people who brought food, Lord. We're so appreciative of what we have. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Let everyone say.